We are back. And of course, uh, that music uh, can only represent, I think, one thing to you, dear listener, that fabulous, uh, epic Stanley Kubrick film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, which um, was written by the late Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who passed away two days ago in Sri Lanka, where he lived for the past couple of decades. Arthur C. Clarke is one of the most famous names in, in the history of science fiction. He had a very strong background in the sciences, which contributed to his writing. Clark was born in Somerset, England in 1917, and during the Second World War, he served in the Royal Air Force as a radar specialist. After the war, Clark earned a first-class degree in mathematics and physics at King's College, London. In the post-war years, he became involved with the British Interplanetary Society and served for a time as its chairman. There's some controversy as to whether he was the originator of the concept of the geostationary satellite, but uh, he certainly advanced the idea in a paper that was privately circulated among the technical members of the BIS in 1945, and the concept was published in Wireless World in October of that year. Now, we all rely in the modern world upon geosynchronous satellites, but uh, perhaps people don't ever give it much thought to note that Something orbiting down close to the Earth's surface has to go a lot faster than something that's far out, like, say, the moon. And Clark got the idea during World War II that if you could find the spot where something orbiting the Earth would take 24 hours, the exact amount of time it takes for the Earth to turn on its axis. Well, it turns out if you do the math, and, and, uh, and Clark did back in 1945, a spot about 22,000 miles out needs 24 hours to orbit which is where we placed a lot of satellites uh, since we started uh, launching them uh, in the late 1950s. And by the way, Clark considers that possibly his greatest contribution to mankind may be the idea of the space elevator, uh, something that was roundly uh, laughed at when it was first proposed, but is now being taken very seriously. Launching an object into Earth orbit takes an incredible amount of fuel, about a thousand pounds of fuel just to get one pound into orbit. And uh, with modern nanotechnology, it might just be possible to create a structure strong enough to be strung out to geosynchronous uh, orbit and beyond, which would allow us to, yes, take an elevator into Earth orbit. There remain some major technical obstacles to be solved before this becomes a reality, but, uh, but you never know. A lot of very smart folks uh, think that uh, this will happen. It's curious to note that Arthur C. Clarke's first venture into film was the Stanley Kubrick-directed 2001 A Space Odyssey. The two men had met in 1964 to discuss the possibility of a collaborative film project, and uh, the idea that, that they decided upon was to loose, be loosely based upon Clark's short story, The Sentinel, written in 1948. Personally, as much as I like the movie, and, and, and I like it a lot, I think the book was even better. And uh, curiously, perhaps one of uh, Arthur C. Clark's best-regarded books, the award-winning 1972 novel Rendezvous with Rama, was optioned for film many years ago, but it's been uh, described as currently being located in development hell. There's a director assigned to it, and they've got actor Morgan Freeman on board, but, uh, you know, who knows when, when that will actually uh, be on the big screen. There's so much you could say about Arthur C. Clarke. I think we're going to have to bring back someone more literary than, than moi, and perhaps our good pal Dr. Andy Jones can collaborate as he's done uh, so many times with this program. 
Dr. Andy brings you Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour every Wednesday on KDVS at 5 p.m. And um, uh, he's a big sci-fi fan. I'm sure he'll have a thing or two to say about Arthur C. Clarke. So probably we'll probably talk about that sometime in April. And we said we'd talk at the top of the show a little bit more about uh, the fifth anniversary of the Iraq War. So let's do that. Would refer to the Common Dreams News Center article published uh, last month. It was a piece published on February 22nd by Greg Mitchell, uh, noting that five years ago, embeds got ready for war duty in Iraq and asked the question of how did that work out? And of course, we all know that didn't work out so well. And uh, personally, this correspondent is getting sick to death of hearing about how we were misled uh, in the ramp up to war. Uh, people were misled if they wanted to be misled. Noted Greg Mitchell in this article, uh, unlike many other publications, referring to his magazine editor and publisher, we gave ample space to the skeptics. Richard Reeves called coverage generally pro-war. David Halberstam said he felt uneasy about this war. Phil Bronstein, then editor of the San Francisco Chronicle, declared that a lot of questions had not been answered at all. Where is the debate? Asked Orville Schell, dean of the journalism department at UC Berkeley. And Ariana Huffington questioned the lack of discussion of American casualties. Norman Solomon concluded a feature article with this. Experience tells us that once the Pentagon's missiles start to fly, the space for critical assessments and dissent in the U.S. news media quickly contracts. Journalists get caught up in the war fever, and their careers may benefit, but journalism suffers. Said Daniel Ellsberg at the time, five years ago, The government, like in Vietnam, is lying us into war. Like Vietnam, it's a reckless, unnecessary war where the risks greatly outweigh any possible benefits. He listed three things the press was getting wrong about Iraq. That Saddam represents the number one danger to U.S. security in the world. That we are reducing the threat of the use of weapons of mass destruction by attacking Iraq. And... The reasons we're singling out Saddam is that he cannot be contained or deterred, unlike other leaders in the world. And and one of the most astonishing lies we were told about this war is that it would cost hundreds of billions of dollars. We reported that on this program at the time, saying we believed it would cost at least that much, and it turns out that that, of course, was a vast underestimation of the cost of the war. Current article in Vanity Fair magazine excerpts the new book, the Three Trillion Dollar War by Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz, which estimates that by the time the war winds down and the troops come home, the cost to U.S. taxpayers will, in fact, be a staggering $3 trillion, roughly 50 times the White House's pre war predictions. And uh, that's a conservative estimate, say Joseph Stiglitz and co author Linda Blimes in The Washington Post. This estimate includes many of the war's hidden costs, such as lost productivity of wounded veterans and rise in oil prices, but did not include the cost of the economic slump that the war has triggered, nor does it speak to the schools that could have been built or the bridges that could have been repaired. Three trillion dollars may seem hard to grasp, say the authors, but we've done the math. Noted Bob Herbert in the New York Times, Whatever the precise cost of the war, there's no denying that the Bush administration has tried its best to hide it. The White House has insisted on financing the war through so-called emergency supplemental funding bills, which aren't subject to the usual congressional oversight. 
They've also relied on heavy outsourcing of military tasks to private contractors, said Gary Camilla in Salon.com. And of course, as he so often does, uh, Tom Tomorrow, uh, writing in the This Modern World comic strip, completely nails this. Noting in last week's strip in the first panel, showing a couple of neocons, at first they told us the war would pay for itself. The first neocon, it looks like Richard Pearl. The only problem Iraqis will have is figuring out what to do with all their oil revenues after they fully finance reconstruction of their country. Says neocon number two, who resembles Paul Wolfowitz. Perhaps they can purchase additional rose petals with which to shower visiting Americans, such as ourselves. Second panel shows Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld noting that an early estimate of $50 billion was scoffed at. Larry Lindsay was forced to resign after putting the number at the unheard of $200 billion. Notes Dan Perkins, also known as Tom Tomorrow, in the third panel. As it turns out, the war is costing us $10 billion a month, which works out roughly to $333 million every day. Or if you prefer to think about it this way, $4,000 per second. Then uh, noting uh, Joseph Stiglitz's figure of $3 trillion, uh, Perkins notes that if you taped $3 trillion $1 bills end-to-end, they'd reach to the moon and back more than 600 times, which he notes would be almost as effective a use of our resources. Anyway, it's sad to note that, that it really is about the money. Almost no one is profiting from this fiasco in Iraq, but that isn't the same as saying that no one is profiting from the war. A few people are, and they're profiting rather handsomely. And the fact is, these are people of great influence. And in fact, their influence got us into the war in the first place. And now, they're the ones profiting from it. And I must say, I find it very curious to note that uh, Victor Boot is now in handcuffs for supplying arms to people all over the world. He's called a merchant of death, and he certainly is that. But uh, when you consider that the United States is, by many estimates, outspending the entire rest of the world on military hardware, you wonder who, who really are the merchants of death out there. And we have to spend at least, I think, one minute contemplating the fact that it was 40 years ago this week that uh, Charlie Company was sent out to lay waste to four hamlets in the Son Mi district of Vietnam, which included the hamlet of My Lai. Last week's Economist had a very disturbing photograph published of uh, Vietnamese peasants looking terrified with the caption on it, Moments Before Death. The My Lai Massacre has been described as the worst atrocity by American forces in the Vietnam War, but uh, many think it may be the worst atrocity which came to light in the Vietnam War. American soldiers in arms, uh, you know, mutilated victims' bodies, gang-raped women, a baby was used for target practice, and in this horrific story, about 500 Vietnamese civilians, consisting of women and small children, along with the elderly, were just massacred. I don't know how this can be described as anything other than terrorism. It was U.S.-sponsored terrorism and a war that didn't make a whole lot of sense, but which, sadly, a few people did very well with financially. One person who's been on our, our wish list to come on this program for some time is Seymour Hirsch, who broke the story of the My Lai Massacre 40 years ago. And uh, I don't know that we'll get him, but, uh, but we are going to try. 
Mr. McMillan uh, tells me that Seymour Hersh was on Democracy Now! a few days back, and I, I bet you can find that uh, somewhere on the web. All right, let's talk about some things that are uh, a little bit less disturbing, although still not good. Writing in Slate.com, Daniel Gross, uh, last month, had the following to say, What a bunch of babies! I refer, of course, to the supposed leaders of finance and commerce who populate Wall Street. Lately, traders and other Wall Street types have been staging public tantrums, screaming and yelling and writhing on the floor until they get what they want. The outburst started last summer with the subprime mortgage mess burst into the open. And since then, the financial elites have been demanding interest rate cuts and federal relief to rescue them from their disastrous investment decisions. In response, Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke has done what any exhausted parent does when the child screams for three hours straight. He gave in. And, and mind you, Daniel Gross was writing this last month. He gave in, sharply cutting interest rates twice in two weeks. But as any parent could have told Bernanke, giving in just invites another tantrum. Within hours of Bernanke's last cut, Wall Street was demanding still lower rates. And of course, they got them earlier this week with the drop of the prime from 3% to 2 and a quarter. So if you're being responsible and plan to save some money and hope to earn some interest on what you've wisely uh, kept in your nest egg, well, good luck. And although we think uh, Daniel Gross has it exactly right with the jackasses on Wall Street, <laughs> we would note that uh, at least they're not the brother of the Sultan of Brunei. Apparently the Sultan's brother, Prince Jeffrey Bolkaya, apparently burned through a cool $14.8 billion fortune. At least that's what his brother, the Sultan, is accusing him of. Prince Jeffrey is quoted as saying, I keep asking the lawyers, where did it go? Whereas attorneys for the Sultan say, it's no great mystery what the prince did with the money, which was entrusted to him in his capacity as head of the oil-rich country's investment agency. Among other things they say, he acquired a fleet of 1,700 luxury cars, a 180-foot yacht, New York City's opulent Palace Hotel, and more than 100 paintings by Picasso, Renoir, Modigliani, and others. Prince Jerry has agreed to return most of his riches to the Sultan, but he's trying to persuade his brother to let him keep enough money to maintain a more modest version of his prior lifestyle. <laughs> Said the prince's lawyer, Philip Douglas, it's only fair. The prince has had unimaginable wealth all of his life. Now he's going to go and bust tables? Personally, we here at Radio Parallax think that Prince Jeffrey Bolkaya busting tables is a capital idea. When uh, he fell out of favor with Mao Zedong, the chairman sent Deng Xiaoping to do that and other similar menial tasks for quite some time in order to impress him with uh, Mao's idea of the importance of being frugal and modest. Not that Mao Zedong necessarily knew that much about being frugal and modest, but it was something he thought that others should develop. And in our final item of the day, it appears that the British courts finally were able to settle the Heather Mills versus Paul McCartney matter, awarding Ms. Mills $48.6 million, which apparently did not include an estimated $5 million in jewelry the ex-model is being allowed to keep. 
If you do the math on this, it turns out that Heather Mills ended up being paid approximately $40,000 per day for the four years she and the music legend actually lived together. So all in all, that's not a bad deal. Oddly enough, it's being called a good deal for both sides because apparently the court valued the ex-Beatles net worth at about $800 million, which is far less than the widely reported $1.6 billion. Said a longtime Beatles associate, it might not be 1.6, but trust me, if you accurately calculate his royalties and other assets, he has to be worth at least a billion. But then he added with a laugh, what's $200 million between friends? Cause I don't care too much for money, but money can buy me love. All right, that's it for the program. On next week's show, we're going to speak with William Poundstone, the author of the Big Secrets series. Uh, we're big fans and... Look very much forward to bringing him to have you talk about his investigation into the secrets that uh, have been kept hidden from us. And the week after that, I expect to have a report of uh, my visit to New York City and Washington, D.C., where I've been promised a tour of the NBC studios. Our thanks to Dr. Donald Prothrow, whose excellent article, What Missing Link, uh, was in New Scientist magazine, which I imagine you can probably pull up on the web. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our associate producer today was Letty Chavez. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. Hey!